So there's, there's things that we want to accomplish in this series. I'm going to give you three things. The first is this. We really want to help people who are wrestling with these legitimate questions to resolve these arguments. Now, these people are wrestling with these questions, and I can just say that. They might be an unbeliever and not a follower of Christ, and they may be a follower of Christ. You can be a, a, have faith in Jesus and have questions. The requirement for salvation is not that you got everything figured out. I didn't have everything figured out when I gave my life to Jesus. The last time I read in the Bible that those who call upon the Lord shall be saved. The last thing I remember is that those who are justified by faith shall be saved. Those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in their heart that God's raised them from the dead, shall be saved. But they gotta, they gotta believe 100% this and 100% this and 100%. No, they don't. There's no scripture that you can find that would justify that position. You're saved by faith. Now, with that, you got a lot of stuff in there. How many of you have ever wrestled with questions of faith? As a Christian. Okay, oh, hands go back down. I'm talking as a Christian. Okay, well, there's about 20% of us. But uh, I have, and I've wrestled through a lot of issues, and that's probably why I'm so passionate about this particular subject, and uh, you know, come to these things. And, and it's really important to me, because I came to Jesus not because I, I had some encounters with Jesus, but I really came through Jesus through reason and logic, which is the second. And so I believe, you'd really, to be a strong Christian, you have to have a philosophical foundation for why you believe what you believe. I really do believe that very strongly. The second thing we want to do is obviously we want to equip believers to give logical conclusions uh, concerning their faith and how to really address some of these arguments and some of these challenges and some of these questions uh, with faith and logic. And so we're hopefully we're going to put tools in your hand. Now listen, I've done on this sermon today, I've done mass research and I'm going to try and take mass research into 30 minutes of presentation. Okay. Uh, as Picasso said, if I had more time, I'd write you a shorter letter. In other words, sometimes time limits me, so I'm not going to be able to answer all questions, and I'm not always the sharpest tool in the tool in the toolbox. Okay, what I mean is that I may not be the most effective in this, and there might be people out here that I can't even impress or persuade one inch. I'm not going to help that. Okay, I am who I am. Okay, I'm giving my best shot at you. I'm not a scholar, I'm a pastor, but I think pastors have to address these issues. The third is this, why we're doing this particular series, is that we are actually engaging in spiritual warfare. You know, many times the, the um, people are, are from, the, from a biblical perspective, I'm gonna read basically two verses to you. People are, are, are filled with presuppositions and sometimes wrong or erroneous conclusions because there's another element besides intellect involved in this, that there is demonic warfare taking place. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four. I know, that, I, know that, uh, I know that the spirit world is not a part of our thinking system in the West, but you know, Ben and I just came back from Cambodia where that is very much a part of their culture. It's not just Buddhism, but it's shamanism and animism and all sorts of other isms that make up the Cambodian culture. So, so we were in our hotel room on our last night, been sleeping like a little baby, and I was just trying to get to sleep. And, uh, you know, by the way, we had twin beds. We weren't in the same bed. But, uh, but I did save you about $800. But, uh, and, uh, <clears throat> and it just lights are out, and all of a sudden I hear this knock on the door. I hear this, 
I'm thinking, who's knocking at 11.30 at night? And so maybe they're throwing our, you know, our bill under the door, just let me know it is. And so I came out, and there's no one there. And I'm going to bed, and I said, McGregor, you're starting to have auditory hallucinations. I mean, you are starting to fantasize, and you're starting to hear things. And, I mean, you're slipping on the banana peel, bro. You are. This is it. It's happening. So I get in bed, go to sleep, and we did our last morning of ministry, and we're going to go to the airport. We have a lunch with uh, leaders, and, and somehow we got involved in the spiritual dimension of Cambodia and spiritism and demons, because they, they have people manifesting all the time, all sorts of stuff. And uh, Jesse McCall said, yeah, all sorts of weird things take place around here. One of the things that happens in Cambodia a lot, especially in Phnom Penh, is people get knocks on the door, and when they come to the door, no one's there. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5 says this. <clears throat> it's a good one. Verse 4 is a better one. That's what I'm looking for. And it says, but verse 3 is even better. But even, even if our gospel is veiled, verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing, among whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. So they would not see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5, Paul says, you know, the weapons of our warfare, they're not natural, but they're mighty in God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down every argument and every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now, the way we apply that is, these thoughts I bring down in my mind in Jesus' name. But that's not what Paul was talking about. Now, if you do that, enjoy yourself. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible's teaching, Paul's saying, you, you judge our physical presence. You judge my rhetoric style. But I'm coming to you in the power of the Holy Spirit. And my weapons are not from this world. And we bring down the arguments in people's minds in our ministry, in our word ministry, not just through natural means, but through the power of the gospel. So we are engaging in this thing called spiritual warfare. Now, a few other things on introduction. And, and that is this. One, faith and logic both have a place with each other. Now, first, there are things, and you may not like this as a, me saying this, but it is true. After all my research, and I felt this for a long time, there's just things that only faith can explain that logic and reason cannot. Like what? Like how about the Trinity? You can't explain logically the Trinity. You're going to have to accept it by faith. Well, we can. Ice is solid, and it's gas, and it's vapor. What's wrong? Because that'll turn into a thing called modelism, where, they're, where God and Son, I mean, Father and Son are not different, but they're the same thing. And so we do have three persons and one God. Well, Bob, how do you explain that? Well, you really can't. It gets to be a declaration, but it's all over the New Testament. Or how did God create out of nothing? Explain that logically. He spoke and bam, it's there. It, 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 faith and reason is not going to be able to come. Oh, I, I know. Well, keep trying. But there's some things that faith can, can only know. By faith, Paul said, we understand. And so that is true. But the, at the same time, faith and logic can, I mean, excuse me, reason and logic can actually explain many of the truths of Christianity. So it's in, and they, they can be in harmony with one another. It can never usurp faith. But it can actually support many of the truths in which we believe. That's the first. The, the, second, the second is this. 
is that Christianity is reasonable, but it's not obvious. The truths of Christianity are reasonable. The reality, the logic, the reason of Christianity is reasonable, but not obvious. It's more like E equals MC squared versus 2 plus 2 equals 4. Now, what Christians have tried to do is they tried to make reason and logic 2 plus 2 equals 4, when really the logic and reason of faith is E equals MC squared, the law of relativity from, from Einstein. That's still true. It's just not black and white and clear right out of the gate. And so there are things that are clues there that you're going to have to seek out for and put together and talk about. It's not an easy road. And the third is this, is that with all your defense and all the things that you share, there's just people who will not or even choose not to believe. There is that element that you have to understand. Paul said this, all men do not have faith. So they don't, they don't want to maybe seek the clues or they, they, they don't, they don't want to listen to the reason and, and the logic of that thing. They, they've had their own prejudicial conclusion. We have our prejudicial conclusion. There's no getting around that. And I'll talk about that in a second, why that's okay. But they're not going to come to that conclusion and you're not to lose sleep over that. But there's a lot of people that this will help will help you and it'll help you help people and it'll be a, a great tool to be able to help people come to faith in Christ, I believe. So we're going to deal with questions. So here we go, our first question. If God is all-powerful and God is love, why does evil exist in the world and why does he not stop it? Explain that. Good question. Why do people starve? Why do children die of cancer? Why the, why the Holocaust or why the killing fields? Why abuse, sexual, verbal, physical? Why murder? Why rape? Now, if you look at my life, and I've shared my life story with you sometimes. Sometimes people use it against me. Bob's got this problem because of his past, but that's okay. I'll live with it. I, I share my story to give you hope. But one of the things that I, that I, why I share it is because I have an exposure to evil in my life. I've tasted evil. I'm not an outside philosopher looking outside in. I tasted evil. My mom was insane. My mom also had serious epileptic seizures. I've been taking care of epileptic seizures since I was five, six years old. I'm talking about grand mal seizures. I had to, we were kicked out of public places. I wasn't allowed to go into certain restaurants. I wasn't allowed to go into people's houses because of my family. My mom was a hoarder, so we lived in a garbage dump for 20 years. I had no food, we had no shower, we had no access to water. And so I, I lived a level of evil in my life. I was sexually abused at 12 and tormented for seven years by the perpetrator who, who molested me that I would come to great physical harm if I betrayed the relationship. So I've suffered sexual abuse. I've suffered ostracism where I'm not allowed to go into places and people weren't allowed to associate with me. I, had, I suffered poverty. I have malformed feet as a result of my bad nutrition. I got issues today physically because of that. I know what it is not to have food. I know what it is not to have money. And on top of that, I went through handicaps. My mom had epilepsy. My brother was, uh, my mom was pregnant with my brother. She had a seizure. She didn't come out of it for three days. He was brain asphyxiated, never developed past two months. Uh, he lived to be 56 years old. He was my older brother, but it impacted our family. I have a granddaughter who's got lysencephaly, smooth brain disorder. She has about a 
50% chance to live to 10, and, and the longest right now is like 22, 23 years of age who has her particular disorder in her brain. She'll never walk. She'll never talk. She, in a level, she's too fed. She has seizures all the time. So I walk in a level, whether it's a level five or a level three or a level seven, evil has been a part of my life. And so I think I have a little bit of a grounds to be able to talk what it's like. And a lot of times, not in all cases, people who really ask this question have nearly have themselves not suffered that much in evil. Leo Tolstoy was so taken up with the injustices of poverty until he started noticing the poor that they were happy and they, they resolved issues and they got, they raised families and they had joy and in the midst of suffering they had perspective. And he had a, he had a statement, let the peasants teach you. Let the peasants teach you. And he, that's where he had to come to his own resolution. Well, let's first look at the Bible here and let me just say this. The Bible, you've heard this, the Bible contradicts itself. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. The Bible lives in tension. How many people saw Fiddle in the Roof with, with you know, Tevia? On the one hand. On the other hand. On the other hand. That's the way a, a Jew would look at the tensions of truth in the Bible. That's the way the rabbis would discuss truth. Now, we're fundamentalists. The Bible says in this book, on chapter 5, and verse 4. <laughs> but really, in the Bible, we have the tensions of faith. So I'm going to take you through the tensions of faith here in the Bible. And it says here, and the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So here in this declaration of what God said about the condition of man in Genesis, man has a lot to do with why we have evil. Second verse I want to give to you. As for you, this is Joseph speaking to his brother. You know, brothers, you know the story. He was betrayed. He was his dad's favorite. He was honorable. He was the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And his brothers hated him and were jealous, and so they beat him up and threw him in a pit and then sold him to a, a, a slave train going to a caravan, going to Egypt. So he was sold into slavery, told their dad that he was mauled by an animal, and he was a, a house slave in a house where he did great service and he was very successful. He was falsely accused of rape. He was thrown. got a plan for you. It's wonderful. And so this is how God was treating the one. He said, I got a destiny and I got a plan for you. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's a wonderful plan. God loves you and has a beautiful plan for your life. Okay, so. <laughs> you know, I love Joel Stan. I really do. I think he's the... I think he's the best 22-minute preacher in the world. I really do. I, when I'm depressed, I watch Joel Osteen. But, but God had a beautiful plan for Joseph's life. But it involved, it involved a season that wasn't very good. And he says these words, you meant evil against me, because they were now kind of upset, because he got, went from the dungeon, if you don't know the story, and he got exalted, basically, the prime minister of Egypt, the greatest nation in the world. And he was in control of the whole economy of the world. And so his vision came to pass. It just didn't come to pass like he thought it would come to pass. And he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So God uses, according to this verse, what he doesn't approve. This is a very important principle biblically, theologically, to understand. That God uses things he does not approve to bring about his will and really man's ultimate good. Well, saying that, let's look at the book of Job. Job, he, he had a few bad things happen to him. Lost his, all his wealth. He lost all his family. He lost his health. He had his wife left who wasn't really a helpmate. She really didn't have the spirit of encouragement on her. Her word of counsel and comfort was curse God and die. Thank you. Oh, what's for dinner? And, uh, and he said to her, shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Shall we see, receive only good from God, or shall we not also receive evil? Psalm 91. Psalm 91 seems to give us promises of protection that is, is a promise given to us in almost an elitist category and not to other people. Because you have made the, the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall befall you. No plague shall come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. So there's a protection here from evil that's promised. A great book to read is, I think it's called One Call, One Nation. I didn't have time to find my copy of it, but it's the, it's the, it's the autobiography of Dennis Balcom, who was, was called to China, still labors in China, probably responsible for 100 million Chinese conversions. He has files and files and files and files and files drawers of, of, of records of miracles and people being raised from the dead. He's been arrested for his faith. He used to go from underground church to underground church in a coffin like he was in a funeral parade. That's how he got to the underground churches. But he was drafted in, in the Vietnam War in a combat unit, and he knew he was called to, to China so he wouldn't carry bullets in his rifle. He wasn't court-martialed because the rules didn't say you have to have bullets in your rifle. He carried his weapon. He just wouldn't put bullets in it. Now, he said, I would fight for the life of my unit if it meant that, but I wasn't going to shoot an Asian who I was called to preach Jesus to. And so he was 14 months in on the front lines, in the jungle, in combat, in a combat zone. And David Schock, the prophet, said, you know, you're going to have everyone fall into your left and fall into your right, but not, nothing will harm you. Now, David Schock was one of the great prophets in the 50s and 60s. He actually, he, he, he prophesied the loss of the Vietnam War. He actually said that something tragic was going to happen to John F. Kennedy, came to pass. I mean, he was a prophet where the word of the Lord came to pass. And so Dennis believed him. And Dennis was in a firefight, you know, little sandbag camps, you know, out in, out in the middle of the jungle, and everyone's around the hills, and, the, and just a barrage of bullets are flying down. They had their floodlights on, and everyone's down in their foxholes, you know, basically pinned down. But Dennis said, you know what? The word of the Lord is the word of the Lord. They will fall by my left. They will fall by my right. And so he just stood up, and he just walked over to the light switch in the, camp, in the compound, bullets flying all around, not one touched him. He turned off the light, 
walked back to his foxhole, and when he did, the whole unit came piling into his foxhole. <laughs> and they said, man, we're just gonna be with you because God's with you. And, and so there's a reality of testimonies of people who've experienced the reality of Psalm 91. Now, this scripture is what Satan tempted Jesus with in the temptation to jump off the pinnacle. And Jesus says, don't test God. In other words, you can't use this verse for presumption. But there's a reality of this. Okay. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes says this. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. How many people have seen in your own life where justice didn't seem to come real fast? Well, what this is saying when that happens and it involves some other person doing evil against you, it emboldens them to do it longer and more. So just because a crook isn't caught immediately doesn't mean he stops doing it. He can get himself even more courageous. I can rob one bank after another bank and they're emboldened to do this because they haven't faced the the consequences yet. What goes on to say, and uh, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Now those who fear God will be rewarded and they may be suffering because of the agenda of the evil person. Because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a, like a shadow because he does not fear before God. In other words, judgment will for some. The man who molested me and actually said that he worked for some agency of the government to actually do USO shows but actually do assassinations for the US government. And I can tell you story after story how he built that whole platform up. Even staged in a situation where he said he killed someone in my presence or at least... In my, in my almost proximity company. That man molested a lot of young men. And uh, I separated myself from all relationship when I got saved with him. But I still had this gnawing thing that he could get me. I didn't bring Sue into it. It was just a gnawing fear. Tell me we went back to our hometown. I was always on guard. I always had my defenses up. And so I lived in a traumatic experience. Now, because I learned more about the power posture of pedophilers, I understood that it could have been all an act to hold power over me. But when I was 22, I didn't. When I was 23, I didn't. So what happened to him? Well, it was reported of a young man that got molested by him, and before the police could get to him, he killed himself. My issue says, because judgment is delayed, they keep moving and do more evil. But judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Luke, interesting story in Luke. Lady was bowed over. Jesus heals her on the Sabbath day, and he's being accused of practicing medicine on the Sabbath day. And Jesus says these words. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Ought not this woman, now I want you to notice this, a daughter of Abraham. Now she's the daughter of Abraham. What about Psalm 91? Psalm 91 says, no evil shall befall you. 
Great question. Daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. So here is a woman of faith. Here's a woman who claims Psalm 91. Here's a woman who says, the Lord will protect me. I'll hide under the shadow of his wings. But for 18 years, she's plagued with an infirmity that debilitates her whole life. That's almost two decades. And Jesus associates it with Satan. But she's, God does nothing for 18 years, but Jesus comes along and looses her from this thing. At a specific time, justice comes. At a specific time, mercy comes. At a specific time, deliverance comes. But she still has suffered 18 years. But there is, there is a moment when it's reversed. And a lot of tension in scripture. Yes, there is. This is what I do for a living. You're out making buildings and signing contracts. I'm trying to figure these questions out. How you doing? It's tough business. It's a tough business. Here we go. Now, gee, Jesus, Jesus sends his disciples out. He's getting them ready for their mission when he is going to be resurrected from the dead after the cross and ascends to heaven. And Jesus says this to him, and I want you to proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without pain, give without pay. That's a, that's a good little admonition that every little ministry should uh, understand these days, that there should be no price tag on our ministry. So Jesus arrives announcing the kingdom of God. And he said, listen, the kingdom of God is here because I am here. saying, I'm coming to put a flag. Kingdom is here because Jesus is here. And what Jesus was saying, I'm coming to put a flag in the earth called the kingdom of God, and I'm starting the process of removing evil from the human experience. I'm laying a flag down and this flag is being laid down to say the, the future has begun. And he gives his apostles a commission. I want you to go in your, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. I want you to heal the sick and cleanse lepers and raise the dead. And I want you to begin the process of removing evil, which will finally be realized at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So in theology... It's called the kingdom now, but not fully yet. So we're in a process of removing evil. Well, who's, what do you mean? God does that. Well, that's a whole other thing. Are we part of the answer to our own question? That we are also involved to relieve poverty and to relieve suffering and to protect the innocent and to reverse injustices and to heal the sick. And it involves more than just healing, but it can be also social justice. And I know people get really upset about that sometimes. But poverty is caused by people's sin sometimes, and poverty is caused by oppression sometimes. I was with a Christian in Cambodia a year ago. His whole ministry is to make sure businesses really that we buy, of the products we buy, are not making money off of human slavery. That's called justice. And we're Christians. And we're supposed to be involved in justice. And so we're here to heal. 
We're here to deliver people. We're here to fight for people. We're here to protect people. We're part of the answer, but we've still got evil until the second coming of Jesus. So one thing that the Bible does agree on with everyone is that we live in this present evil age. But God has an answer of removing that through the power of his presence and ultimately through the second coming of Jesus Christ. In my studies, there's a philosopher that I've gotten very, very excited about. His name is Peter Kreeft. He's a Catholic, teaches at Boston College, philosophy, got his degree, uh, also taught at Villanova, and got his degree, his master's postgraduate out of Yale University. He's a sharp thinker. He's written a number of, of books on apologetics and philosophy. He's got some wild ones, like one book's of a discussion of Kennedy, C.S. Lewis, and Aristotle. They've all died. And so the whole book's about their discussion about heaven and hell. I haven't read it yet, but it's fascinating. I'll probably end up reading it. He has like a list of 20 books everybody should read before they die. But, uh, but uh, he has uh, been received by both Protestants and Catholics, and he's a great philosophical thinker. Peter Kreeft made, made this particular statement. If God is the creator of, of all things, and evil is a thing, then God is the creator of evil. And he is to be blamed for, for its existence. No, evil is not a thing, but a wrong choice or the damage done by a wrong choice. Evil is no more a positive thing than blindness is, but it's just as real. So we face the reality of evil. That doesn't mean that God was the author of evil. You know, it's interesting. We're working on my preaching timing, and I got through the introduction today. That's okay. The wonderful thing about pastoring is I always have next week. Let me, let, me, um, let me end by talking about a bear, a trap, a hunter, and God. This hunter came in the woods one day and he saw a, a, a bear trapped in a trap that laid out for him. He could see, saw the bear was suffering and he, and he had compassion upon the bear and he wanted to help the bear. And the bear uh, really reacted to the hunter and so when he comes up to try to help the bear, the bear's clawing at him, growling, and, and, uh, because the bear doesn't know really what the hunter's up to doing. He doesn't understand what he's doing. And so he decides that he had some, some uh, drugged you know, darts to shoot into the bear, to drug the bear so he could help the bear. But he, but he had to, to, to get the bear out of the trap, he had to actually push the bear deeper in the trap so that he could open the trap. And the bear didn't understand that and fought back as best he could in that drug state. And there was this long, long tension. And here's the problem. The problem is this, is that the bear, as a bear, could not understand the man as a human's motive. And what we have with mankind is that we are finite people trying to comprehend an infinite God. And just as much as the bear could not understand the motive of the man, many times you and I cannot understand the motive of God. That makes no sense to us. Speaking as a victim of evil, there was a time that God didn't make sense to me. 
There was a time that the way I saw my life was not the way my life turned out. Completely different. I'm writing my autobiography right now, and I was telling Chris Ziegler the other day, I better get saved. I'm starting to get depressed by writing this. <laughs> I'm in the chapter of the book where I come to Jesus, and it's like a breath of fresh air, because I'm, I'm getting myself depressed writing my own story. But, but the issue is I didn't see the motive of God. I couldn't see it. If you told me that you were going to marry a babe like this, have kids like this, and a life like this, and people like this, and purpose like this, I wouldn't have believed you when I was 17. I sat on a porch and said, why have I been cursed? Why have I been cursed? You know, Proverbs 14, verse 10, says this. Thanks, guys, for coming up. I appreciate that. I do. I really appreciate that. Sincerely, I do. <laughs> the heart knows its own bitterness. The heart knows its own bitterness. With its joy, no one else can share. What's it saying? It's saying that with other people, I can't even understand other people. If Ben's going through something and he's just hurting, I can't get into his heart how he's hurt. Oh, I do, man. I really compassion. No, we're all limited. I can't know it's his own joy or his own pain. I can, I can connect a little bit with it and try to connect, but I, I can't. I don't know what's going on in there. I, I'm not Ben. Now, here's another problem. The other problem is this, is that, is that the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So a lot of times, I can't know Ben because Ben is being deceitful, not even being honest with his own heart. How can I know his own heart when he doesn't know it or he knows it and he's being deceitful and covering it up? So, Bob, what are you saying? Well, how do we have a relationship? You're messed up and Ben's messed up. We really are. I might have to do this thing called trust. I know enough about Ben that I'm going to put my trust in him. Ben knows enough about me, he's going to put his trust in me. And that is a thing called faith. Well, I don't know what God's up to. How about starting a thing called trust? I don't know what God's doing in my life right now. How about a thing called trust? I don't have the answers to all my questions. How about a thing called trust? Let's stand to our feet.